You are listening to The Body Podcast, brought to you by Stephanie Fransén. Hi everyone and welcome to this new episode. So today we're going to talk about blood pressure regulation, but we're going to hit this topic with a twist. So we're going to focus today on the gut microbiota in blood pressure regulation. And to talk about this topic, of course, I have with me an expert. So I would like to introduce Associate Professor Jennifer Plusnik from the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in Baltimore. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Jennifer, can you please introduce yourself and tell us how you ended up on this specific research pathway? Sure. Um, So, as you said, um, I'm currently an associate professor um, of physiology at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, but I can talk a little bit um, about how I got here. So, Um, I always wanted to be a scientist ever since um, I was a kid, actually. But um, for me, I never I wasn't initially drawn to physiology per se. I was just drawn to science in general. So as a kid, I wanted to be a geologist or an ecologist. Um, Even in undergraduate, I um, changed my mind all the time. So I was a biology major. And that meant that each semester, um, once you get past your first year of classes, each semester you would take a different specialized class in some area of biology. So, for example, one semester I took genetics and one semester I took ecology. And my college roommates often made fun of me because um, every semester I would change my mind about my future career. So when I took genetics, I was like, I'm going to be a geneticist. This is what I meant to do. And then the next semester I took ecology and I was like, I'm definitely going to be an ecologist. Like, this is my thing. The last class that I took before graduation, just the way the classes were ordered, was physiology. Um, So I can't promise that part of the reason I'm not here might be part uh, because simply of the the order of the classes. But um, also physiology really um, caught my interest, particularly um, kidney physiology or renal physiology. Um, I was just really fascinated by it. So there's um, kidney disease in my family, including me. I'm lucky to have very mild disease. Um, but because of that, I've been exposed to doctors through myself and my, uh, my family members, including nephrologists. And I would heard some things about stuff that I knew the nephrologists would always worry about, but I didn't really know why. For example, whenever anyone had protein in the urine, the nephrologists would seem to, you know, shake their heads and tell us that there was protein in the urine, and this seemed like really bad news, and, and I wasn't really sure why, but when I took undergraduate physiology and we did our renal section, um, the lecturer taught us about how the glomerular filtrate is formed and how, um, due to size and charge and shape, all these different reasons why protein should be excluded from the filtrate. Um, and in that lecture, I was like, oh, so that makes so much sense. Like, that's why protein in the urine is bad. All these things, must, these processes must have broken down or have gone wrong for that to happen. Um, and that just, uh, I think that really made it kind of come alive for me a little bit more that I could make connections like that. And I really got fascinated with physiology and with renal physiology in general, or in, sp- in particular, rather. And um, so I uh, applied to graduate schools um, to do uh physiology research. And I was um, lucky enough to go to a school that had a couple labs um, that worked on kidney physiology. So that's what I worked on for my PhD. Um, 
And then um, I did my PhD at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, where I studied um, a subunit of an ion channel, which plays a role in renal potassium secretion. And um, then I moved to Yale University to do my postdoctoral fellowship. Um, and it was there that um, I initially was doing um, a microarray to study um, cells with two different versions um, of a protein that is involved in polycystic kidney disease. And in the process of doing those microarrays, um, we very unexpectedly found that some of the hits on the microarray were olfactory receptors. Um, and I initially thought that perhaps this meant that something had gone wrong with the array. I did not expect to see olfactory receptors in the kidney. Um, I, like many others, I thought of them as being restricted to the nose. Um, however, uh, my postdoc advisor, being much wiser than I, um, kind of looked at me and said, well, that would be cool, right, if olfactory receptors were in the kidney. And when he said it, suddenly it sounded like a really good idea. Um, so we were able to follow up on some of those studies and found that um, olfactory receptors and um, some other olfactory-related signaling proteins um, are, in fact, expressed in the kidney. And we were really encouraged to find that a few years earlier, others had published that olfactory receptors are um, found in other places in the body, most famously, um, or, or the first report, rather, um, and probably the most famous one. Um, it was a report that olfactory receptors are expressed in sperm. And that sperm use these um, G-protein coupled receptors, olfactory receptors. Um, the suggestion is that they're using them to chemotax their way up a concentration gradient in order to find the egg. So we thought that was really cool. And as renal physiologists, we could think of lots of reasons why the kidney would want to keep track of lots of different molecules and metabolites in order to maintain homeostasis. So um, we got really interested in the idea that um, that perhaps these receptors played a functional role in the kidney. Around the time that I was um, finishing my postdoctoral fellowship and getting ready to, to move here to Johns Hopkins, um, we were studying a new one of these olfactory receptors in the kidney and trying to understand um, what, what the ligands were for this receptor and what activated it. Um, and what we found is that the receptor was activated by metabolites that are made um, by the gut microbiome. So gut microbial metabolites, um, uh, chemicals that are made by our gut bacteria produce these metabolites that are then absorbed into the bloodstream and circulate throughout the body and, um, and can activate this receptor that's found in the kidney and, and elsewhere in the body as well. And so this really got um, me interested, kind of pulled us into this idea that um, the gut microbiome um, might play a role to um, to manipulate some aspects of um, of renal physiology and or cardiovascular physiology, as the receptor we were studying, it turns out, is expressed um, in the kidney and the afferent arterial, um, but is as well as some other places, but is also found in the vasculature and a number of different organs. Um, and we went on to to study this receptor and show that it plays a role. Um, to regulate blood pressure, um, we see some um, interesting phenotypes in mice where we knock out this receptor. Um, and together with some collaborators, we're able to show that this receptor seems to play a role in mediating um, renin release in response to these uh, metabolites. Um, there's been a number of studies um, since by um, 
by a number of different groups that have looked at um, a lot of different aspects of blood pressure regulation and the gut microbiome, including looking at um, the gut microbiome of patients with and without hypertension, looking at um, what happens with all kinds of different interventions. And, um, and, and it seems like it's, it's become pretty clear now that there, there definitely is um, a tie-in between blood pressure regulation and the gut microbiota. I don't think that it's something that we understand um, nearly as well as we would like to, um, but it's clear that there's an association there and there's good reason to think that in some instances, it's a causative association as well. Well, thank you for that. And it sounds like you've had an amazing pathway to where you are today. So let's begin this talk with some basic physiology of blood pressure regulation. So what can you tell me about this? Sure. So um, when it comes to basic physiology of blood pressure regulation, there are certainly important, um, there's a number of different important players. So um, blood volume is, a, is an important indicator, and that's where the kidneys come in. And so as a renal physiologist, I like to think about it from that point of view um, quite a bit. But obviously, there's also um, neural components. There are vascular components. Um, for our work, we've studied quite, um, we've been focused quite a lot on the renin angiotensin system. Um, so this is one of the primary systems that um, regulates blood pressure and renin is the rate, uh, the release of renin from the afferent arterial um, is the rate limiting step. So um, renin cleaves um, uh, angiotensinogen, which um, eventually is going to become angiotensin 2, which is the main effector of this pathway. And because renin is the rate limiting step, that's really a key um, proportion of this pathway. I think if you ask different physiologists who, um, who are neural physiologists or renal physiologists or cardiovascular physiologists, you might get slightly different answers as to what is the primary mechanism that regulates blood pressure. And I, and I think that really is because it's a very integrative measurement that is regulated and um, is affected by a number of different systems. Exactly. So we have these mechanisms that keep blood pressure at a steady state continuously, but of course this can go wrong. So we can get the high blood pressure or the low blood pressure more commonly known as hypertension or hypotension. So tell me about this. Sure. So um, hypertension is when um, your, your blood pressure is elevated over what are considered normal values. And hypotension, of course, is when, um, is when your blood pressure is, is decreased below normal. Um, there, are, there are certainly... Um, single genes um, that can be mutated that can cause these disease. And um, these all, these single gene mutations that cause um, hypo or hypertension all localized to um, the distal part of the kidney nephron, which plays a really important role in salt handling, which is, um, you know, something that um, us kidney people like to point to when you talk about the basic physiology of blood pressure regulation and, and what systems play what sort of roles, that that is some good evidence that the kidney is quite important. Um, and it's in controlling extracellular volume through these, um, through these uh, pathways in the distal nephron, because if you mutate them, those, um, those single gene mutations can cause hypo or hypertension. However, those types of causes of um, hypertension are really pretty rare. Um, I think um, it's those are genetic mutations that absolutely happen in um, 
usually isolated in smaller groups of folks or in families, um, but more commonly um, people that have hypertension um, might have what we refer to as um, primary hypertension, um, which is also known as essential hypertension. This is really high blood pressure that doesn't have a known cause. Um, oftentimes um, this can develop, is more likely to develop with age. It can be more likely to develop if you have other comorbidities. Um, but most of the time there's not a single gene or um, something very simple that we can, we can point to or we can make a nice diagram and explain um, why the hypertension is there. But um, more commonly it seems to, to evolve over time with age and with, um, and sometimes associated with um, certain types of lifestyle choices, et cetera. Yeah, so you're mentioning this lifestyle choices. I think that a lot of people associate hypertension with maybe a high salt diet or obesity. What do, what do you think about that? Do you agree? Yeah, I think that that that's correct. So I think that um, it's, um, it is more prevalent in those populations, but certainly there are, um, there are people who, who don't eat a high salt diet and who are not obese that have hypertension. And there are people that do both of those things that are not. So it's clearly more complicated than that alone, but it does seem to increase your risk if you, um, if you fall into certain categories. So let's get into your area of expertise in blood pressure regulation. So I'm so thrilled and excited to hear about how does the gut microbiota relate to blood pressure regulation? Because I'm not sure that anyone would actually think that it's a possibility. So I, you said it was, there's a lot that we don't know, but what, what can you tell me? Because I'm so curious. Sure, I can certainly try. Um, so there, there are a number of studies that show that, um, that there's an association, um, which of course does not mean that something is causative, but there's a number of studies that show that there's an association. So for example, if you take patients with and with hypertension and you sequence their gut microbiomes, um, the gut microbiome of patients with hypertension is different than those um, without. Um, I think there's a couple um, there's a couple things to to be cautious of there. So one is that of course we don't know. There's a chicken or an egg question. So does their did their microbiome change after they became hypertensive, or did they have a different differing microbiome, and did that drive the hypertension, or perhaps a little bit of both? Um, so that's that's one question. Um, Another, another thing that I, I like to bring up in this um, vein, because I just find it really fascinating, is there's a, a paper that came out a few years ago that looked at um, type 2 diabetes. So it's really um, one of the first things that was shown to be associated with changes in the gut microbiome um, is type 2 diabetes. And there was a, a paper um, that looked at um, patients with type 2, type 2 diabetes and showed that the um, the really classic changes that had been thought to be type 2 diabetes associated with these mice were actually just a signature of patients that were taking metformin. So because such a high percentage of these patients take metformin, 
um, it showed up in the data. So basically, um, this, these classic changes in gut microbes that we thought were type 2 diabetes related weren't present in type 2 diabetic patients who weren't taking metformin. They were only present in type 2 diabetic patients who were taking metformin. And I think this is something else to think about when we think about things like hypertension. Um, patients with hypertension might be um, a good percentage of, them, percentage of them might be on a similar class of drugs. They might be counseled um, by their physicians to undertake similar dietary changes, um, lower salt diets and higher potassium intake and such. Um, so I think that, that that's another complicating factor when we're looking at associations is that other than the hypertension, there's other things that these patients have in common that could be driving this signal or their, conf or their confounders, in other words. So that's something that I think is an interesting thought experiment to think about anytime you're doing um, gut microbiome work and comparing to two different populations is to think really hard about what the confounding variables may be. Um, so that being said, there's also um, evidence that there are um, that there are not just associative um, associations rather between the gut microbiome and blood pressure, but that there um, there's reason to think that there are causative links. So um, there is a beautiful paper that came out a few years ago that showed that uh, that um, high salt diet changed the proportion of different types of microbiome, and that by giving those micro those microbiome back to mice, they could um, change the effect um, on the diet. Um, there's also a study that took um, it was a, a fairly small end, but it was really intriguing. They took um, gut microbes um, that they collected from patients that had hypertension and gave them to mice. And those mice that got um, microbes from an hypertensive donor had increases in their blood pressure, implying that the that the gut microbes may be um, driving, uh, may be in part driving the hypertension. And that's a, a variation on a really classic experiment that was first done by Jeff Gordon's lab um, looking at um, obesity. Um, and gut microbiota, again, type 2 diabetes and obesity is kind of the classic thing that was first um, tied very clearly to the gut microbiota. So in this classic Jeff Gordon experiment, what they did is they um, had human twins that were discordant for obesity. So where one twin was obese and the other one wasn't. Um, and in a really pretty nicely powered study, they gave these um, microbes to mice and the mice either got um, microbes from the lean twin or microbes from the obese twin. And um, the, the mice that got microbes from the obese twin um, were gained weight and, and weighed significantly more. So there, although um, a lot of the data that's out there is associative, there's also some data um, that, that I find relatively convincing that, that implies that there really is um, that there really is some effect of the gut microbes to drive the hypertension. Um, it goes the other way as well. So if you induce hypertension in an animal, so for example, we can give them an infusion of angiotensin II, that hormone that I referred to earlier, um, and we sequence the microbes of the mice before and after the angiotensin infusion, their, their microbes will shift quite significantly. Um, so there's reason to think that the arrow might go in both ways, that the changes in the gut microbiome might be influencing the blood pressure phenotype, but that the blood pressure phenotype might also be influencing the microbiome. Um, and, you know, perhaps it's even a, a feedback loop of some sort um, that may help to um, keep hypertension um, in place once it's established. Um, but yeah, I think that the, the association versus causation um, um, kind of which way the arrows goes is some, definitely something that the field um, needs to understand better and is working really hard to try to understand better.
So this is really exciting and interesting, and I have a lot of questions. So I want to ask you, like you said in the metformin study, so do you actually have to consider that as the gut microbiota has a feedback system to the blood pressure regulation, so you have to consider that what you're consuming, like drug-wise, could actually alter the gut microbiota and therefore alter the feedback mechanisms for blood pressure. Yeah, I think especially when you're um, when you're doing a, a study where you're comparing two different human populations, like one with disease and, and then your control population, I think it's in that that's that metformin paper really kind of opened my ideas, my my eyes rather to the idea that you have to think about in addition to having the disease or those other things that those patients have in common. So if you know, if a high percentage of people with type 2 diabetes are prescribed metformin, then that is something that you need to um, try to control for in your data analysis. And it can be hard to control for if a very, very high percentage of your population um, is on the same drug. But there, there is reason to think that, um, that, that drugs can, um, can influence the microbiome and that, and there's actually a, a really nice study um, that I saw recently that implied that the opposite is also true, that the, the microbiome may be able to um, to um, to catalyze drugs in different ways and may also affect the, the efficacy of some drugs. And so that's something else um, to, to keep in mind. So again, the arrows tend to go both ways. Exactly. So another question that pops up in my head, of course, is that since we're talking about the gut, it's pretty obvious that everything that goes down to our GI tract is going to affect the system, like diet or if you have IBS or other GI diseases. So are there any literature or what do you know about how different type of diets and GI diseases affects the gut microbiota blood pressure regulation system? Yeah, that's a big question. I don't know that I can I can answer it um, super well. There's definitely studies that have looked at different dietary changes, and there are there are big effects on the gut microbiome for sure. Um, when you um, when you depending on um, what diet you have, um, there's a number of different reasons for that. But um, one thing that I, that one way that I often think about it is that. Um, your microbes are producing different metabolites based on what you're eating. So not only are, are not only are your microbes changing to some extent based on what you eat, but your microbes are breaking down um, food that you ingest. So things that are we don't have enzymes to break down. Your your microbes often have those enzymes and will break them down for you. Um, and so the metabolites that they produce are going to be different depending on what um, what substrate you give them depending on what you're eating. And those metabolites are um, thought to be a good part of how the microbes affect the host initially. So these metabolites get absorbed into the bloodstream and can circulate around the body and interact with host proteins. Um, so not only can the microbes change as you eat different things, but um, the substrates you're giving them to metabolize are changing and, um, and therefore the the metabolites that um, end up being more um, higher or lower in your circulation are going to be quite different depending on what type of diet you're on. So you said metabolites. What type of metabolites are we talking about here that are involved in the blood pressure regulation? 
Um, sure. So I think that um, short-chain fatty acids are uh, the, the metabolite that our lab has studied. So these are really small um, and simple chemical molecules um, that are that are broken down from dietary fiber. So if you intake more dietary fiber, then your gut microbes are going to be able to produce more short-chain fatty acids. And these short-chain fatty acids, um, which are primarily um, acetate, butyrate, and propionate, they are um, able to interact with um, a couple of different types of proteins in the body, including G-protein coupled receptors, like olfactory receptors, which is what we've studied. So it's that, um, that olfactory receptor that we found in the aphion arterial, it seems to be activated by these short-chain fatty acids in order to influence renal secretion. So um, that's, the, that's the particular metabolite that we spend a lot of our time thinking about. Great. So now I am super interested and really curious about the specific studies and what you're doing in your lab right now. So can you please give me a deep dive into your into your research and what you guys do over there at John Hopkins? Sure. So um, our group is kind of has has two different um two different main areas, as I've kind of already alluded to. So we're definitely interested in this idea that novel um, G-protein coupled receptors play roles in renal function. Um, and we've identified a number of different G-protein coupled receptors that are that are found in the kidney that, that haven't been studied. So um, people who think about renal physiology um, or any kind of physiology are probably very familiar with the G-protein coupled receptors, so the angiotensin II receptor is a G-protein coupled receptor. Um, there's a number of very famous G-protein coupled receptors that are well known to play key and classic roles in physiology. Um, however, our lab um, isn't really interested in those famous receptors. We're interested in the receptors which haven't been studied, or as we like to think of them, they're not famous yet. So there's a number of receptors that are expressed in the kidney at pretty high levels, similar to these famous receptors that have been well studied. Um, but for which we don't really have any information on their physiological role. Um, often there's a reason for that. Some of these receptors are hard to study because we don't know what their ligands are. We don't really have good tools to look at them. Um, but nevertheless, we want to believe that um, if one can, can find the right tools and can tackle and try to understand what these receptors are doing, they have the ability to reveal to us some really novel aspects um, of physiology that we weren't previously aware of. So that's that's one focus of the lab is just taking novel receptors that we've never before studied and trying to uncover what their function is. Um, this is especially interesting to us because G-protein coupled receptors are the largest, largest druggable class of protein um, in the genome. So more drugs target GPCRs than any other type of receptor. Um, and thus, we think that there's a, a lot of utility in trying to understand what these different receptors are doing. Um, a couple, multiple receptors actually that we studied in the lab to date are, it turns out, um, rather accidentally, we found that they are activated by gut microbial metabolites. And thus, the other kind of half of the lab's interest is really focused more on the gut microbiome. Um, initially, it just focused on the receptors that we've, um, that, that we were particularly had a, a pre-interest in, if you will. 
However, um, more recently, we've also just started to try to, to look a little bit at the gut microbiome interactions with the host in general, in particular when it comes to things um, like blood pressure or kidney function. Um, so, for example, we did um, a study a few years ago where we looked at um, gut microbial metabolites in the blood of um, mice with and without hypertension as induced by an angiotensin II infusion model. Um, and in order to do this, we used a really cool mouse model called germ-free mice. So if you're not familiar with germ-free mice, they are uh, mice that are completely um, devoid of any microbes at all. So they're raised in these sterile bubble isolators. They're actually very difficult to work with because you can only interact with them using these like giant gloves where you reach in through a huge incubator, um, like you're a scientist at NASA or something. Um, because these mice have never seen a single microbe at any point in their lives. They basically live in this bubble um, that includes, you know, not only bacteria, but um, they've never seen a phage or a fungus or, or anything else. Um, and they have a, a unique physiology and they provide a really unique model to try to understand um, how gut microbiome, how the gut microbes affect the host physiology by comparing the physiology of um, mice with and without these gut microbes. So what we did in the study is that we were able to um, induce hypertension using this angiotensin II infusion in both germ-free animals and then in, in control conventional animals that do have a gut microbiome. And then we simply did uh, metabolomics on these different, um, on all these different categories. And we saw that um, there's a, a shockingly large number of uh, metabolites that, that change with hypertension that are um, dependent on the gut microbes. So in fact, um, all the plasma metabolites um, that change with hypertension appear to be dependent on gut microbes, which is really exciting to us um, and implies that um, the gut microbes um, aren't, just aren't just responding to the hypertension um, by you know, by changing which sequence of, of microbe is more likely to come up in your sequencing, although we did definitely see that happening as well. But they're also producing metabolites um, that are changing in the bloodstream. Um, so um, so that's kind of the second part of the lab is has become over time a lot more um, microbiome focused, still tied to some extent to the GPCRs that we know and love, but also just trying to understand or, or to begin to understand the influence of gut microbes and host physiology. And this is so amazing and inspiring to hear. So I want to ask you maybe a hard one, but a fun one uh, to speculate about. So if you imagine and fantasize, where do you see this area of research in five to 10 years? Like the gut microbiota in association to blood pressure regulation and of course hypertension where do you want to be yeah that's a great question and kind of a a fun one to think about as well as long as you don't hold me to any of my predictions um <laughs> so i think that uh so I think there's a couple, I think I think the pipe dream right is that if we understood um how to if we understood better how gut microbes influence hypertension, then there would be an opportunity in the future to intervene. So if, if for example, I have a gene that predisposes me to hypertension, um, short of you know doing CRISPR on a human, there's not much we can do about that. We can treat it 
um, we can treat the disease, but we, we can't easily fix the mutation or fix the gene. However, if I have gut microbes that predispose me towards hypertension, um, that's actually very malleable and ve it's very changeable. So you could give me a course of oral antibiotics to wipe out my gut microbes and then you know, you could have me eat a lot of yogurt or something with a certain type of microbe or give me a gut microbial transplant from someone else who had healthier microbes. And there, there's a, there's an opportunity, I think, to try to remodel um, someone's microbiome um, towards what we think is a more healthy state. So that is something that um, that is a, a pipe dream, I would say, at this point. I don't think we're there yet. I think we need to understand how all of this stuff works much, much better. One thing that kind of gave us pause in that gut um, and that in that uh, micro uh, metabolite, sorry, that metabolite study I told you about before is that one of the metabolites that increased with hypertension that was um, that that the gut microbiota required for is actually a metabolite that's been previously shown by others to decrease blood pressure. So that implies to me um, that it's possible that the gut microbes may not only be driving the blood pressure, um, they might be actually trying to help, right? So some of the, it's possible that some of the changes that happen in gut microbes and hypertension are adaptive. Um, if you think about it, it's not to the gut. If you're a gut microbe living in someone, um, you don't really want them to um, to become ill. That if your host goes down, you go down, so to speak. Um, so maybe they're maybe in some cases they're they're trying to help to help mitigate the hypertension. So it, at least in this one instance, they're producing more of a chemical that's been shown to lower blood pressure when we um, challenge the animals with angiotensin two. Um, so I think to that end, before we try to, you know, change the microbiome of someone with a disease and make it look more like a healthy control, we need to understand which of those changes are, um, are might be driving disease and if any of those changes might actually be corrective or might be trying to, to mitigate disease in order to do that in a wise way um, and, and not in a foolish one. Um, I think that that's a pipe dream. I think a, a more um, what I think is a more possible kind of short term application of this work is that um, if you think about it, we change our microbiomes all the time. So if you um, if you take a course of antibiotics, um, you've you've remodeled your microbiome um, and there, there are studies that show that it, it kind of moves back towards where it was before you took the antibiotics, but it typically doesn't um, doesn't recover completely after each course. Um, Obviously, if you change your eating habits, um, then you can also um, change your gut microbiome, et cetera. So I think one, you know, one possible um, future application is that you might have uh, a, a physician, if you have a patient that needs to take a course of um, antibiotics, um, that you might then have them follow up with probiotics for a few days after the antibiotic course is over, just to try to restore um, Re restore the gut microbiome back towards um, a healthy state so that you're not constantly um, moving further and further away from your initial microbiome with um, every course of antibiotics over your lifetime. So I think that's a um, that's a perhaps a more a more possible um, short-term thing if we understood things a little bit better is that we could try to be wiser about how we're already changing our microbiome and try to mitigate damage that we're already doing with things like um, like what, what we eat or especially with courses of antibiotics. And I mean, that is so cool to think that if we could actually use the gut microbiota to treat hypertension and blood pressure regulation diseases as we, where we could change the gut microbiota in people that have a microbiota which are bad for them and that we could actually 
provide them with a new gut microbiota who which might be beneficial in the blood pressure regulation system yeah exactly i think um i, I think we just need to really make sure we understand what we're doing um obviously um uh, to take an approach like that but i think that is a that's a it's something that's hard not to think about as a potential extension just because the, we know um, we know that we can change and remodel the microbiome in a purposeful way and we just need to make sure we know what we want to remodel it to um, and what changes we want to induce. Yeah, and I mean the field is wide open and there's a lot more to be learned. So I understand if you can't answer this, but if you can, that's amazing and awesome. So do you have any like really fancy and cool stuff in your pipeline that you can share with me? Yeah, I mean, so we have a we have a couple, we have a new receptor that we're studying um, that, that we're really excited about that we think plays a role um, that kind of integrates these two areas. We're also doing some work um, to understand the gut microbiome's role um, and, and kidney function in addition to cardiovascular function. So um, I think, as you said, the field is wide open and there's, there's a lot that we need to figure out. So I hope that before too long, we can, um, we can get those papers out um, and then, you know, maybe we can chat again. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. So I wanna ask you, can you give me a powerful and great take home message for our listeners? Yeah, so um, that's an interesting thought. So I've so when I think about my work um, as a PhD student and as a postdoc and as a faculty member, I feel like the most interesting things, um, if you can characterize them that way, that I found in, in all three of those cases um, were unexpected and were not my original hypothesis, right? So in, in, in all of those cases, um, I set out to study X, but um, trying to be a good scientist in addition to measuring X at the same time that I did the experiment, I measured a bunch of other parameters and one of those other parameters changed that I didn't expect. And I said, well, that's weird. Why is that parameter changing? I wouldn't have expected, you know, changing this one condition to affect this over here. Um, and that, that unexpected parameter that changed ended up being much more interesting um, than the question that I was asking, because, you know, sometimes the questions that you don't even know to ask are the most interesting because we don't even have enough information to make the hypothesis yet. Um, so I, I think that is something that I try to remember from my own work to, to keep my eyes open to unexpected findings and to, and to measure, you know, even if your, if your primary outcome is blood pressure, to measure a lot of other things so that, um, A, so that you can understand the context of the changes in blood pressure as well as you can, um, but B, because you might find something that you didn't expect and that, that can lead you to a to new and exciting um, direction. So I guess my take home measure would be that um, unexpected findings can be cool and that we all need to keep our eyes peeled for the questions that we don't yet know how to ask. Yeah, that's a great summary. Thank you for that. So I want to say thank you for this talk, Jennifer. I hope you had fun. I had a lot of fun talking about this with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. This was fun. So thank you everyone for listening. And I hope you learned a lot today about blood pressure regulation and how the gut microbiota is involved in this. Super fascinating. I have learned a lot. 
So don't forget to follow the podcast on Instagram. And I hope to that you will stay tuned and listen again in the next two weeks. Thank you again and have a great weekend. Bye. Thank you.